Hello and welcome. In this week's podcast, we take a look at the most anticipated upcoming book release, The Big House in Kerry, A Social History. This is a large body of work which features 14 well-known Kerry historians, and it also has beautifully illustrated pages and edited by my wife, Jane O'Hay O'Keefe. And to mark this occasion, I've selected a number of sound clips taken from our archives. And we start with Tom Denny, a direct descendant of the Denny family from Tralee, who owned much of the lands around the area for over 300 years. I visited the home of the Denny family in Dorset, and we were surrounded by antiques and portraits and artefacts from the castle. And Tom starts talking about the castle. The castle, as a building, um, was wonderfully amorphous and um, sort of informal, not a grand house, but quite a hulking structure, and um, retaining fragments from several centuries. Up above me there is a portrait of um, Sir Edward Denny III, baronet, who pulled it down in 1826, um, a crime which um, I think was much resented in Tralee at the time, as I understand it. You know, people felt angry that um, that part of the town's history was being destroyed. But it seems uh, he was quite a muddled character, and it's quite strange that he was... Um, driven to do that in the end, in that he, um, as a younger man, when he inherited the estate, promptly set about a grand building project to enlarge um, the castle, um, and which um, Edward Den which sort of created problems for Edward Denny's um, finances. Um, he then subsequently went to live in um, Worcestershire, um, and... Um, never returned to Tralee Castle and pulled it down 20 years later. But it's strange that he did so because his sense of his family's history was so strong he remained fascinated by um, genealogy and artefacts from Denny, the Denny past and continued to acquire Tudor portraits long after he'd pulled down the Tudor remains of the Denny house. Hmm. Tom continues by telling us a little bit about the history of the Denny family in Tralee. What happened was um, the Denny's became very um, successful and wealthy in Tudor times. And um, a courtier of King Henry VIII called Sir Anthony Denny um, became a, a big landowner in Hertfordshire and Essex and had... Um, two sons. His elder son um, remained in England and um, inherited these grand estates and, and with him the Denny family died out in um, England um, with um, the grandson of um, Sir Anthony Denny. But Sir Anthony Denny's younger son, Edward, um, was a kind of adventurer who was involved in um, various naval exploits. He was a sort of similar character, as well as being a cousin of Walter Raleigh and Humphrey Gilbert, a sort of swaggering, um, confident, typical Elizabethan. And he, um, he went to um, um, Ireland um, 
with Walter Raleigh, his cousin, um, so early um, in the 1580s and um, was involved in the um, um, conflict with the Desmonds, um, as a result of which he gained land around Tralee. But he himself, that Edward Denny, the first who came to um, Tralee, um, wasn't very happy um, in Ireland. Um, and there's one of his letters, I think, I've seen in one of my grandfather's volumes where he talks about um, service in Ireland is more fit for a mastiff than for a, a gentleman seeking honour. Uh, but he did come and he, he, did. he did stay. He, he did uh, he stay. He did build up the... Um, yes, I mean, his, it's his, his son and grandson who really became um, entrenched in Irish life. Mm. I would say he... Um, was obviously important in in the fact that the Denny's became um, part of County Kerry, but he himself, um, I don't think, felt strongly attached to Ireland, whereas his son um, returned to um, um, to Kerry and um, lived initially at a house um, just to yeah. the east of Tralee, yeah. and supposedly he built. Um, a house there. I don't know whether there's any remains of it left. I mean, the, I think my grandfather visited a few stumps of stones, so they may, those stumps might still be there. But okay, and and so that would have been the first Denny. Uh, uh, I think, house, the, think? The, the castle was in a ruinous state. So at that yeah. stage, he built he built that, and then his son rebuilt um, the castle and went to live there. And it, it it was back into the castle then again in, yes, in the in uh, the sort of about the sets, in about the no about the sixteen thirties they were properly in the castle, yeah. And uh, so the castle survived then until um, well the Confederate Wars. Uh, yes, it, 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 it burnt down again. It seems um, it's described as having been burnt down at various times in sixteen forty. Um, Nine or no, not as early, uh, probably 1646, something like that. There was a siege of Tralee. It was during the 40s anyway, and after that, the castle was ruined. But um, and then again in the 1690s, it was ruined. But it seems likely that um, parts of the structure remained, you know, like with I don't know, Corfe Castle in Dorset, for example, was completely blown to smithereens by dynamite after the Civil War. And yet it remains a very dramatic and um, imposing ruin. So it seems likely to me that the various times Tralee Castle was um, slighted or sieged and then damaged, yeah. fragments of um, the structure remained, which were then incorporated into later buildings. And here Tom reads from a letter, which was the very last transaction the Denny's had in relation to their estates in Kerry. August the 9th, 1929. Mother and I have been paid by the Free State Government £209. 4.5% Irish land bonds for our interest in Liscahane near Tralee, the head rents of which have been bought, had been bought by Robert Fitzgerald from Sir Arthur Denny's creditors. This brings to an end our last interest in the seigneury of Dennyvale after 342 years. <laughs> Edward Grey, nephew of the Duke of Suffolk, resided at Liscahane soon after we got it. 
I remember my uncle, Colonel Arthur Denny, living there when I was a boy. He had the long, low house filled with heads and horns which he had shot when quartered at the Cape. Once he was raided by moonlighters who wanted his guns and rifles um, there, but by giving them a quantity of porter, he got them to go quietly. In 2011, I spoke to Dermot Edwards. At the time, he was living in Lismore. His grandfather was John Godfrey, agent in Lismore Castle for the Devonshires, and his grandmother was a sister of Lady Godfrey, originally from Kilcolman Abbey in Milltown. And here, Dermot remembers his very early memories of coming to Kilcolman Abbey. But I used to come over here. I mean, I've brought over here to be baptised. I've brought over here. Um, the the last time I was over here was in '39, and uh, my mother was over. And then the war was coming. My father was going into camp as a territorial, and um, my mother went back to join him. And I went down with my aunt, the youngest, uh, her, her youngest sister. Ursula, kid she was known as, um, uh, down to Kilcolman. We stayed there for a while. Were you there uh, right through the war years? I was there when war was declared. Were you? I always say I was was in the drawing room with an old military telescope looking across at the Reeks. This is Kilcolman, the house that John Knightley writes about. And in the morning room behind me they had the wireless on at 11 o'clock in the morning, war was declared. John Knightley, who over the years has done much research and study into the lives of the Godfrey family. And he's also a contributor to the big house in Kerry's social history. I recorded John at his home in 2011. Well, I was brought up listening to stories about the Leeson Marshalls and the Godfreys. And it, they were very much part of the local history as I was growing up, and one constantly heard stories of Sir John and Sir William and Miss Phyllis and Mrs. Ruth, the Major, Mrs. Mrs. Marshall, and um, we felt like we knew them almost, and that's what sparked off the interest initially in the family, and um, took it from there. Okay, and and so you you moved to Dublin and you uh, you were educated. Um, yes, I went to UCD where I studied history and politics. Uh, but history was always my first interest, especially the history of the, I suppose, the upper classes, and um, especially in Ireland where there's kind of this you know unusual scenario where the upper classes were mostly English in origin, and they always fascinated me. So um, here they were at my own doorstep at home. Mm. And uh, so you went on then to uh, to do uh, a degree at that time? And, uh, I did a BA um, in, in history and then I subsequently um, got a job in the civil service and um, pursued um, the Godfrey story separately from that and then I accumulated so much material that in the end I decided I'd turn it into a PhD and that's what I, I took, undertook in UCD. Did it take much to uh, to get you started on that? To compile the material and finish the PhD took about 10 years um, from my initial exploration of the topic to delving into the family papers, 
collections in Dublin, collections in the UK, speaking to family members and putting it into a coherent document it took approximately 10 years. Was it something that you enjoyed doing? In, yeah, it was a labour of love. I mean, there was there were times when I used to think, God, what have I got myself into? But um, no, I mean, I wouldn't have done it unless I was extremely interested in it. And because I know every boreen and field and, you know, townland in the locality, I mean, reading these letters from the 18th and 19th century, describing them you know, 200 years ago, it, it all made sense to me and I was able to, to kind of, you know, bring it to life almost. Well, take me through that journey now. Uh, it, it, you had the information, a lot of it uh, collected already, mm. and who were the people that helped you in compiling the material, putting it together? Well, I suppose the primary person who I, I owe um, great thanks to would be Valerie Barry. Um, she inherited the Godfrey Papers from... Sir William Godfrey, when he died in 1971. And here is a clip taken from an interview that I did with Valerie Barry many years ago at her home in Callan the Fursey. Uh, please come in, come into the old morning room. It's by uh, far the warmest room at the moment. This is absolutely beautiful. Thank you very please much. Please come in. Yes, yes. How old is this house? Oh, it's only 1861 because the uh, original, well, the originals were Gales, who I was, uh, I'm related to anyway, but then the Godfreys came in 1730, and they built a very, what would be a uh, fairly good-sized house at that time. And then in 1861, the um, great-grandson uh, great of the Earl of Milltown in Dublin, uh, married uh, the heiress here, and they he they were only allowed to keep the place if they lived here six months of the year because he didn't want them sort of um, selling off or spending their life mm. over in England. So, but they lived here all the time, and they built the house in 1861. And. Um she kindly gave me access, unrestricted access to the papers, and what I did was I copied them, so basically created a duplicate set. And uh, then I was lucky enough that UCD in Dublin had acquired the legal papers of the family through a firm of Dublin solicitors. And the, so you had this unusual scenario where you had the answers from the solicitors in the Godfrey papers in Kerry and you had the Godfrey letters in the collection in Dublin to the same queries. And um, and then I, I consulted with members of the Godfrey family themselves, in particular Lady Godfrey, who has just sadly um, passed away, and Belinda Jacob, again, who has sadly passed away. And they then gave me further letters, further information, copies of family portraits, um, showed me pieces of furniture, and so on. And and then, of course, um, Dermot Edwards uh, of Lismore, whom you have also interviewed, um, was a tremendous help and wrote copious notes and gave me access to papers and diaries and letters and photograph albums. And really was able to, I was from that, I was able to piece together the history of the family in the 20th century. And... Um, giving me a very complete picture of one family's odyssey from 1700 right up to about 1960. Take me back to 1700. Why, why did they come here in the first place? The 
family basically came to Ireland as part of the Cromwellian conquest. Um, they um, were granted lands in Tipperary and in Kerry. Mm -hmm. And the lands in Kerry were lands that were originally belonged to the um, Augustinian order, the Abbey of Kilala. And they were confiscated under the Crown, under the Elizabethan conquest and given to the Spring family, um, an, an, an English family. The Springs in 1640s took the sides of the Confederates and um, afterwards they were dispossessed and their estate was given to the, the Godfreys as a reward. And here is Dick Spring, also a contributor to our new book. The background originally from the Spring family would have been Castlemaine, uh, where they have lived for longer than you'd want to remember, mm -hmm. hundreds of years. I think it goes back to around the 1588, uh, when a gentleman by the name of Captain Thomas Spring, he's the first record we have of a spring in Kerry. And um, the folk story goes that he was sent over from Suffolk, uh, Lavenham, the village of Lavenham in Suffolk, uh, to mine the castle. Obviously, the castle on the main. The castle on the, the main. The castle on yes. the main, which is obviously long gone, but um, he. It would appear that he was the keeper of the castle. Um, some locals in Castle Main would say that he was more interested in the wine cellar than he was in protecting the castle, and he didn't hold the job for too long. But there's still farmland in uh, that area, out in Kiltalla, Castle Main, in the Spring family. And the first Godfrey was a soldier. Um, in the the parliamentarian army that came to Ireland, and um, as I say, for the first sixty years they lived in Tipperary. They had very little to do with Kerry. It was only about seventeen ten they actually moved to 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 this county, mm. primarily because the Duke of Ormond in in, in in Tipperary was able to take back the lands that had been given to the Godfreys. And um, so they had no choice but to move down to the poorer county so they had. And um, that's where their journey started, basically, here. Kilcoman, uh, it, it, it was built in what year? The house that uh, most people would remember was built originally in 1772. And it replaced an earlier house, which was called Bushfield, which was built, we think, by the Springs, and then later used by the Godfreys and then um, enlarged by the Godfreys in the, in the early 18th century. But um, that house was destroyed by fire sometime in the 1770s, and they subsequently built a new house, which was called Bushfield II, and in 1772, and that was remodelled in 1819-1820 by Sir William Morrison um, for the second baronet. And unfortunately, the family ran out of money, so it was never completed as planned. And um, that was the house that was demolished in the 1970s. To build such a, an amazing house, we have a, a photograph of it here. I mean, a, a lot of money was needed. Uh, where, <coughs> the, where did that come from? It was borrowed money. And interestingly enough, it was from the O'Connells, Daniel O'Connell and his brother, that gave the Godfreys most of the money to build the house, to rebuild the house in 1814, 1819. Sorry. In fact, it cost four thousand pounds um morrison's original scheme if it had been completed would have cost about ten thousand pounds which was clearly beyond the capacity of the family because as you know in the early 1820s there was a famine in mm. in kerry and um the godfrey tenants were badly affected and quite frankly weren't in a position to pay their rents and sir john wasn't able to finish his house 
But it, ironically enough, it was money from the Alcans that was used to build, rebuild Kilcoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of, of land, uh, what kind of acreage? The family had 7,000 acres, and it, it stretched from Kiloglan to Milltown and went as far as Castle Main. Um, it reflected kind of the, it was split into three sections basically. There was the Kilorgan section, the Milltown section, and Castle Main section. And um, some of it was good land, some of it was very poor land. And uh, the, 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 you know, the, the developing the, the, the parkland and, and trees, uh, w- when did that start? Well, the original house, Bushfield, um, was a very formal landscape. There was a formal avenue, there was a formal series of orchards, there was fish ponds, um, there was alleys, um, Kildare Wood was part of that landscape. It was originally planted in the 1750s to provide oak and bark, which was used in the tanning industry. Um, so the initial parkland was very formal, and which was typical of the early 18th century. Then the first baronet, who was very much a man of the, of the fashionable world, wanted an up-to-date parkland. So he swept away the earlier house and the earlier parkland and replaced it with a natural-style park. Um, with clumps of trees and uh, informal avenues and um, the garden was banished from the flower garden, the vegetable garden was banished to a wall garden some distance away. And But at, at the same time, it wasn't a very large um, domain. It was only in 1819, 1820, when the second baronet inherited that he embarked on expanding the domain and he used the... Um, the talents of Alexander Nemo, the famous engineer, to to recreate the domain, expand it, build a new bridge, build a new farm, buildings, um, a mill. And between 1820 and 1830, um, a considerable amount of planting was take, undertaken. Um, they planted fir, they planted oak, beech, and, and essentially that is the domain that survived until the, that mm-hmm. still survives actually mm-hmm. um, there today. Can you describe Kilcommon House to me as it was in the 1930s. Um, I remember um, in, in, in the passage, in the wing of the house, um, because as a small boy I wasn't in, in one of the big bedrooms, I was in one of the, um, uh, uh, in, in the wing there was a sort of multi-gabled wing going down to the kitchen and to the housekeeper's room and everything and I, mean, I know I was in that room and on the way down to that room, in, uh, between two windows, there was a big bookcase, and in that there were a lot of old illustrated London newses, you know, bound illustrated London newses, which I have now here. Who were they related to? Well, interestingly enough, in the first 60 years, they married families from Tipperary, and in fact, throughout their long history, they only married into two Kerry families. That would be the Blinnahassets of Elmgrove outside Tralee. And then later in the 19th century, they married into the Leeson Marshals of Canlefersi. But otherwise, all their wives were either English or drawn from other parts of Ireland. And the main reason for that was the need for money. And... Um, yeah. In all instances, virtually, they, they married um, 
extremely wealthy women. And that was the main reason the family were able to survive in Kerry right up to the 1960s. Um, so, as I say, the main man himself would have married probably somebody from outside the county or from somebody from England. Then brothers and sisters and younger members of the family married locally, married into the days, married into the springs, married into... Um, Lynn Hassett's, of course, Denny's, Crosby's, all these families, they're all interconnected. The village of Milltown, mm. was 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 was, uh, was that designed and built by the Godfrey's? Yes, Milltown is one of the few villages in Kerry that is a planned village. Um, it's very hard to comprehend the cohesion that once existed in the village, because, because the big house is now gone, which means that the, the, the layout of the village no longer makes sense. And of course, in the last 10-15 years, um, all the inappropriate, in my view, development that has taken place in Middletown has totally destroyed the cohesion of the village. Um, but if you look at earlier photographs, you can see how it was a very carefully planned um, rural um, you know, settlement. And if essentially, the, the, the way Middletown is laid out is there's a main square, which gave access to the big house and then there's the main street which is extremely wide in fact it's one of the widest streets in Kerry and the reason that is is because it was laid out to accommodate cattle fairs in the 1750s and um, the square in Milton then was laid out in the 1780s at the same time the house was remodeled and it was originally in its original form at a very classical square each one of the buildings had a classical facade again it's impossible to discern that nowadays because of you know modern intrusions but if you look at earlier photographs you can see the beautiful classical layout and um, Milltown was established by the Godfrey's approximately in 1730 but it wasn't until the 1750s when this very dynamic man Captain John Godfrey inherited and he his one ambition in life was to make the estate profitable and Milltown was intrinsic to his um, ambition to do this and it was he who basically turned a small collection of linen mills into a major cattle and dairy town and village and by the end of the 18th century it was um it had surpassed Kilorgan in terms of importance but then after 1850 onwards it has it declined <laughs> was a perpetual decline ever since mm. but um but essentially yes it was and and still is in many sense a remarkable example of a design village Another chapter in the book is a chapter on the Maclacutties of the Reeks, and this is written also by John Knightley. And I remember many years ago visiting Virginia Maclacutty, who was the widow of Richard, and who was the last of the Maclacutties to have lived in the Reeks. And here is a clip taken from that interview. Family went time. back pre a thousand years, but obviously not in a Georgian house. Um, but they certainly, um, they. You can go back in, it's so far written, and then you go back further, mm. um, oral history and so on. I mean, they, they, the, the Maclicuddies, I think, uh, and again, you'll talk to people who know more about this side of things than I do, but my understanding is that they, they were in Tipperary and they got pushed out um, and went down to Kerry. But whether that was, that must have been the O'Sullivans, I would have thought, because mm. the, the Maclicuddies, as you know, are a cadet branch of the O'Sullivans. Yeah. Um, and you will have seen on the front door of the Reeks the... O'Sullivan Hand of Friendship, you saw that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh yes, indeed. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they, but there would be, uh, I, I'm sure, uh, artefacts that would have kind of come down all the way, swords. Uh, and yes, I've got a couple of swords that would have, but they were, um, they weren't 
kind of swords that you might um, defend your realm with. They were um, Richard's, Richard's um, 1930s, whoever it was, was the Macleod then. Grandfather, I suppose, uh, was at the coronation of mm. the king in England, of England. So there are, there, are, um, there are coronation stools, two of them, and there are swords, which I think more ceremonial. But again, there is a sad, a sad lack of, of um, things like that. There is certainly, um, there's, there, there is paper. But one of the things, I mean paper by which I mean there are documents, but one of the things which was incredibly sad, one of the rooms, as you, as you go up the staircase on the left-hand side, there is a large cold bedroom, and it was known as the Dunlow Room. And in it sat um, Charles, I think you've got him written down, Dennis Dunner Charles, um, he, he, when he got, he married Gertrude, and who provided lots of money. But she went back over to Italy to live, and he sat in that room. And I think he must have become a little bit eccentric because he was surrounded by newspapers. And um, yes, you've got it there. He had a parrot. Um, uh, he, he came. He went a little bizarre. And I've subsequently seen it. You, you read about people who can't throw anything away, so they're surrounded by horrible stuff. I mean, it just gets a little bit nasty. So my imagination is that he became a bit of a health hazard, I suspect. I don't know. He probably sat there drinking away. When he died, his son, and this is what Richard told me anyway, they just threw everything out on a bonfire. And so what would have gone out, you know, bath with a bath, bath water, that kind of a thing. I mean, there was a baby with a bath water. The, um, he said that a lot of things like chairs that would have been made on the estate would have, were thrown out of the window and stuff like that. And I imagine a lot of paperwork went too because there is a gap in history. You know, there's stuff that isn't there. Yeah. So I suspect a lot went then. The Big House in Kerry, a social history, will feature 20 gentry houses in Kerry and 14 well-known historians, including John Knightley, Declan Downey, Tom Dillon, Kay Cable, Brian McMahon, Donald Cameron, Tom Denny, Jane O'Hay O'Keefe, Dick Spring, Patricia O'Hare, Carl O'Mahony and Victoria McCarty. For more information on this book, you can find it on our website. That's www.irishlifeandlore.com My name is Maurice O'Keefe and I look forward to bringing you another podcast next week.